just saw two raccoons cross the street and go there's this neighborhood fountain this kind of artificial fountain like not really not unlike something you'd see in a zoo and the way they'll set up kind of a they'll set up the scenery and landscaping and you'll see like a waterfall in an animal's cage in an animal's pen in the zoo and so they, they cross the street and then they climb the waterfall and they were just i saw them standing like at least one of them there's two of them and i saw one of them standing on the top of the, the fake rocks above the waterfall and it really did it kind of takes you out of your element where it's like it, it becomes a zoo when you see a raccoon standing on top of a fake waterfall fountain that basically becomes a zoo exhibit and raccoons are funny because they're a fixture of this area like I've, I've been seeing raccoons my entire life but you don't see them very often and I live right next to the woods and even then you don't see them often an exception was about it must have been about 15 years ago there were these gangs of raccoons and I'm talking like seven or eight raccoons who traveled in a group they're like a group of bandits and they were committing all <laughs> committing all kinds of crimes around here like they were stealing cats like as a group they were just like abducting cats and killing them and it was to the point where it was becoming a problem these gangs of raccoons were actually you know they were they were getting into enclosed spaces because you know raccoons are like monkeys they're a very unique animal and that they're kind of like a cat like they kind of have the look of a cat like a main kind of a main coon sort of look but they can use their hands and they can open things they can turn handles they're very intelligent and they lay very low and so that's why you don't see them very often is they lay very low even though they're a fixture even though they're all over the place they're good at what they do that's what i'll say about raccoons is they're good at what they do but I, and i don't know how they broke up the packs or if they even did i don't know why that happened because you will see them traveling in small groups but this was something else entirely and i don't think there was anything about i don't think there's anything about olympia washington that necessarily makes these large, vicious packs you know, any more likely than anywhere else. So it's interesting that that was going on, and it was during this one window of time. And I used to see them because I, I had a friend who lived on the other side of town. And I'd go hang out there until the early out until the early morning hours of the night, and then I'd drive home. And it seemed for a while, without fail, every time I drove home, I would see a pack of them. And people were building outdoor enclosures for their cats because of this. But I think they were even able to get around them. I want to say somebody built an outdoor enclosure and the raccoons were able to figure out a way in. Because they are smart. But yeah, they're a lot like monkeys. Like you think about, you don't think about how your surroundings are exotic. To somebody at least. Like you hear exotic, if you're from the place I'm from, you hear exotic and yeah, you think of... Oh, what are exotic animals? Parrots, monkeys, jungles. Parrots, monkeys, and jungles pretty much are what come to mind. But it's like I live in a place with dense forest everywhere. The sort of stuff you see in a fantasy movie. 
That's the reality of the place I live in. And then we have these kind of cat-like bandits who have many of the skills that monkeys have. But they operate as criminals. I mean, they really do. It's like that's in them. They're scavengers. They're constantly finding ways around human attempts to ward them off, human attempts to protect. I mean, there are times too, because that, that was the other thing, is when, when the big gangs of them were going around, they were just getting into people's trash, which is what they normally do. But I think they were getting inventive with that as well. You know, I mentioned Miss Frisbee and the Rats and Nim, The Secret of Nim recently. That was a foundation of my childhood, both the book and the movie. And it has these rats who are super evolved, who have their own society in the thorn bush, and they too operate like criminals. They're, they're almost like their own secret society. And it was a lot like that, honestly. These big groups of raccoons just going around. But it's always nice to see them. But it's funny because, you know, they can hurt you. Like when I was a kid, you were always told, be careful of raccoons because they have rabies. I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know if it's true that raccoons are more likely to carry rabies if they have a reputation for it, but that was a a, war a warning that was continually echoed where it was like, oh yeah, you know, be careful. And I mean, in the reality too, rabies or not, they'll, they can be vicious, you know, and they're known for, you know, going after people's animals and everything too. Yeah, I don't know if the rabies thing was a, kind of a myth. Obviously, anything can have rabies. But I don't know if that was just... I mean, obviously, you want to stay away from them. But basically, like, you knew they're not just cute and fluffy. They're not squirrels. I mean, don't even get me started on squirrels. I, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan. Uh, <laughs> I'm a big fan of squirrels. But uh, it's funny how, like, you just kind of accept the fact that they are running all over and they're you know allowed to pretty much do whatever they want like the fence behind my house is a squirrel highway it's right near the woods so they use my fence as kind of a jumping off point to get into the trees but they run all along it and you'll see them during certain times in the year they're carrying acorns whatever they're into never really thought about what squirrels are into but yeah they'll be carrying nuts they'll be carrying things they need it's funny to see it but yeah squirrels don't have any reputation for anything you know they're just people don't want them making nests in their attic but it's funny how like they're basically a rodent they're basically a rat with a big fluffy tail but we don't treat them like rats it's just sort of like, yeah, squirrels just do that. And I mean, I don't know. I mean, if I if I had never seen a squirrel and I traveled to another country or another region and there were as many squirrels running around as we have here, I'd be like, this place is crazy. Different types of squirrels, too. Because you have the, the gray squirrels, which everybody, it's kind of the, the main squirrel. Like, if you were to say squirrel to somebody in this area what would come to mind is the gray squirrel and because they're so common and because they're gray they just kind of seem like the generic squirrel but we also have douglas squirrels which are they're darker they have like a darker gray back and then this sort of like white chest with kind of reddish 
like ginger fur in certain parts and they're way cuter too. They're, they're, they're a little bit smaller, a little bit more round. And they're, yeah, not to compare squirrels, but yeah, Douglas squirrels are definitely the cuter ones and, and you'll scare them too. They seem to be a little more easily startled and they make this very loud but cute. I don't even know what to call it. It's just a squirrel sound. Like you'll come like if you're walking in the woods, you'll come around a corner and there'll be a Douglas squirrel like perched and he didn't even see you coming and then he'll see you and he'll just let out this high pitched noise and scurry. It's like a cartoon. But when I was a kid, I went to Canada. My family took a trip to Canada, and we went to some park. It was in Vancouver, BC, that area. And they had black squirrels. They looked just like our gray squirrels, but they were completely black. Which again, like talking about things seeming exotic. And like you kind of take for granted what's normal in your area. These all black squirrels in Canada, or at least in BC, are apparently normal. But it's just funny how you just drive up the coast, you cross a border, and it's like, oh yeah, in Canada they have completely black squirrels. And at this park, though, like speaking of, you know, kind of seeing them as harmless or not, not being concerned. Like, you don't have, if you see a squirrel, like, you can decide whether or not to pay attention to it or not. With a raccoon, you keep an eye on it. Not that it wants anything to do with you, but you're curious what they're up to, and you're also a little bit wary. You're kind of like, eh, you know... Just on the off chance that this one's mad, on the off chance that there's a gang of eight of them, I don't really want to mess with this raccoon, so I'm going to keep an eye on it. But a squirrel, it's totally your choice. You choose whether or not to care about a squirrel, but I didn't have a choice when I was in Canada because we were at this park and like I was just marveling at all these little you know, black squirrels running around. And then all of a sudden one ran up to me and just ran straight up my leg, and I'm sure I shrieked. I mean, I still vividly remember it. I think my dad, because my dad was there, I think he, like, ran over. But it was shocking, because it was, it was, I think they were used to getting fed. It was at this kind of touristy spot, some sort of park where a lot of people go, so I think they were used to being fed. So it was just like, here's a kid. I'm sure kids do it a lot, so it's like, I'm just trying to understand this, this squirrel psychology, and it just ran straight up my leg. Yeah, but it's funny though, just the fact that it's a completely different color. Even though everything else about it is more or less the same, just the fact that it's a completely different color, you're like, wow, this is exotic. This is strange. But yeah, not, not too much else to say. You know, obviously there's plenty to talk about. I'm just, I'm trying to hold back though. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to hold back from commenting on too much. I feel like I, I don't know. I just, I feel like I have to not just clear my head, but kind of reorient myself because it's, it's just way too easy to focus on, not the wrong things, but it, it really does seem like most of what there is to talk about right now is going to be critical. It's going to be negative. It's going to come from a need to vent and complain. 9-11, you know, with 9-11, I'll just say, I did spend time early this morning, last night, early this morning, just kind of revisiting the subject, 
Because it is one of those few events, like as annoying as it can be that people are like, where were you? Where were you on 9-11? You know, even though that whole line of talk every year is irritating, rightfully. It is one of the few events that I distinctly remember that way. And here's my own. Where was I on 9-11? Where was I on 9-11? I was in New York. I saw it all happen. Now, I saw it. I saw the second plane hit live, which is very interesting to me to think about that moment. Because my mom had woken me up for school. Or I, or I, I mean, I woke up for school and my mom was up and she had the TV on and it was on the news. And she, she was just like, oh, yeah, like a, a plane hit one of the World Trade Center towers, which, to be honest, I'd never even thought about. Like, that's an odd angle to the whole 9-11 thing, is the fact that I didn't even really ever think about the World Trade Center before that. You know, because I, I was 15, so I was 15, I just, I had never had a reason to think about it. I'm sure I had heard about the World Trade Center, the, the attempted bombing or the bombing of it in 1993. Obviously, I'd seen tons of movies, movies that take place in New York. Obviously, I'd heard of it. I knew, I, I loosely knew it was an important place in New York. I knew it was part of the New York skyline. I don't even know if I could have told you it was two towers, to be honest. And, you know, I bet that's true for a lot of people who didn't live in New York, hadn't been there, people under a certain age. I think if you were my age or younger, and New York just wasn't a part of your life, I think that was kind of a lot of people's introduction to what the World Trade Center actually was, which is fascinating. It's fascinating that a lot of people were basically introduced to the reality of the World Trade Center as it was burning and collapsing, because that's what it was for me. And I paid attention to a lot of things, too, so I don't think I was just in a bubble where I didn't know about important things. I paid attention to a lot of things, so that that alone just makes it that in, that much more interesting. That it was the first time I really had to think about the fact that this place even existed. I don't think I knew that it was two towers. And uh, so I, I woke up, and and it was within minutes of me waking up. Like it was on TV already. They were showing live footage on whatever news channel it was of the burning tower, the one who had been hit first. And they just said a plane had hit the tower. And I was just like, oh yeah, a small plane hit the tower. I think my mom maybe even said something. She's like, yeah, I mean, I wonder if it was a, uh, I wonder if it was somebody like was flying a, like a small plane. Because you, you couldn't really get perspective. I mean, there's no way your brain, and I know we live in this world now where we think we know everything about everything. But, like, you have no idea what kind of impact a commercial airliner is going to make in a building. I mean, you, like, first of all, like, seeing that on TV, seeing one of the towers had been hit and it's smoking and the news is telling you a plane hit it, you have no concept of, like, the actual size of those towers. They look very tall and skinny, so you have no concept of the size of those towers. And you also have no concept of what a, a big plane would do to that what a small plane would do so really like there's no way to like i don't know it just it seemed fairly normal to me not normal you know obviously it's a big deal that one of the main new york skyscrapers gets hit by a plane but in those minutes and i don't mean to make more out of those minutes i was groggy 
I'd probably stayed up really late. School had just started. I think it was, I want to say it was a Tuesday, because it is one of those things, too, where I'm not the kind of person who's, like, I don't think I've ever even heard anybody mention, that, oh, 9-11 happened on a Tuesday, and I might be wrong about that. I'm saying that without verifying it. Like, I haven't heard or thought about what day of the week 9-11 took place on since I since it happened, really. But my recollection is it was a Tuesday. It, I don't believe it was a Monday. And I believe it was my second week of high school. I mean, it was definitely, yeah, it was my second week of high school. High school had just started the week earlier. So there was a lot of significance to that. But just seeing the smoke, so it's like I got up, I watched a few minutes, just like, oh, interesting, a plane hit this building. It seemed innocent, though, because you could imagine somebody trying to fly a plane, like a seaplane or something, and just crashing on accident. But then it was a surreal moment for me because as I was watching that, like I said, probably minutes after I got out of bed, the live footage, you, you were watching this building smoke and then you saw the second plane hit. And in my mind, they were showing a replay. And I know a lot of people have repeated this, but for obvious reasons why we all thought that, because it was beyond our comprehension. And my mom and I were watching it as this second plane hit. And my brain had to kind of compute the fact, like I think it hit me before it hit my mom, where I was like, wait, that second plane just hit and it feel, I thought it was a replay of, of the original crash, but there's smoke coming out of the other building. Like the other building is burning and I'm seeing a plane hit. So it was like my brain had to reconcile the fact that this was a second plane. And, you know, with, with how much 9-11 has been, I don't want to say mythologized, because, you know, I don't, I don't really feel like 9-11 was mythologized. I mean, I think somebody would say it obviously was and has been. Someone could say it was immediately mythologized. I don't think so. The gravity and weight of it... 9-11 was, was mythologized in the same sense that very real events can be mythological. If that makes sense. You know, in the same way that you can go through certain experiences that aren't necessarily normal, and they, they, it's not just that they seem mythological to you, it's almost like you are acting out a mythology. And I feel like that's kind of what 9-11 was, where any mythology it had was actually reality. It was like mythology meets reality in that way. Won't go on, won't go on more about that. Um, and, you know, somebody who, who uh, you know, didn't have that moment of seeing it, you know, where you actually saw the second plane hit, it was surreal. It was one of the most surreal things I've ever seen. And I pursue surreal things. Most of my interests involve the surreal. So to say that has some weight. And I could downplay it because it's such a popular talking point. I could be like, oh, 9-11, just another day. But the, that's not the truth. And uh, 
my brain had to reconcile what I was seeing. And it's like the fact that it was like, oh, there's, there's already smoke coming out of the one building when that second plane hit. And that's when I realized it wasn't just a replay. And then as my mom was driving me to school, like right as she dropped me off at high school is when the radio, we had the radio on and the radio was talking about, I think one of one or one of the towers collapsing. So it's an interesting second week of school, an interesting experience. And then too, like when you're in school, when you're in high school, when something like that happens, which you know, impacts everybody. Like, like I imagine in school today, when a big event happens, people talk about it, but it doesn't necessarily disrupt everything. And what was so interesting about that day is that everything was truly disrupted. Like you were there, but nothing was expected of you. Like I, I think my first class of the day was French. I think I, my first class of the day was French class. But my science teacher was the one there. <laughs> you know, you want to talk about surreal. It was one of those things where, like, there was this sort of, you know, like, looking back, she's probably, like, my age now. She was probably in her mid-30s. So she seemed like one of the younger teachers. And uh, she wasn't there because apparently she knew people who worked in the buildings. I don't think nobody she knew died or anything, but she didn't know you know, obviously the morning that it happened, she had no idea. So she didn't, she left. And so we, I go into French class and my science teacher is teaching it and he, he's crying. And I think I have a vague memory of either that class or another one, like bringing the TV in and us watching the news and just kind of talking. Like he just kind of fielded questions, which is, itself is very interesting. Like, because, you know, he, he was just kind of, he was a science teacher. You know, almost all science teachers kind of fall into a certain type of person. But he was wiping tears from his eyes. He wasn't bawling. But you could just tell that he was heavily affected. And nobody knew what was going on. But you know what the weird thing is about it? Because, you know, you felt it. You felt something. But the weird thing was, is like I remember the time, I think I mentioned this recently... Somehow, like, I, you know, I, I didn't really think about these things that much. But somehow, by that time, I already had the opinion that the U.S. shouldn't intervene in anything. I don't know what led me to that. I don't know where I heard that idea. If it was just something, some conclusion I came to on my own. I, my, my thinking was not anything close to sophisticated at the time. And I don't think it is now. <laughs> Uh, but somehow I'd kind of come to a place, right? I was just against U.S. involvement in any foreign war. I mean, I guess that was a big talking point, like growing up hearing a lot about Vietnam. That was a big talking point. But that 100% fueled my attitude about what happened, where I was just like, well, this is what you get for continually intervening over there. I kind of saw it as a a deserved punishment, which I don't agree with now. You know, when I actually think about it now, I don't I don't see it as something anybody deserved. You know, whether it's a country, certainly not the people who were directly impacted. 
and uh, just a sec here. But uh, no, it was my attitude was sort of like, well, this is what you get for continually messing around in the Middle East. And it turns out that was the motivation for it too. Like, like as more information came out, because one of the initial lines being repeated, and I even heard people saying this in school the day it happened, like there was a girl, like a young Republican type girl who was just completely obnoxious. And we were sitting in class trying to make sense of it. And she goes, they did this because they hate our freedom. That might not, not have been on 9-11, but it was within, as soon as it became known that it was carried out by Islamic terrorists, I don't remember if that was well known the day. I mean, people were talking about that the day it happened, but I don't remember how soon after they confirmed or how how soon after that was a talking point. It was very soon, but I just don't know if it was the day of. But whenever that came out, I had this girl in class because, I mean, it disrupted the whole week. People were talking about it all week at least before school went back to normal. But uh, this girl, she, she said in class, she was like, they did this because they hate our freedom, which is one of the big talking points. I think George Bush even said something similar. They did this because they hate our freedom. They hate what we stand for. But, you know, a lot of the guys who carried it out were very westernized Muslims. You know, Ger- they, they had all lived in Germany. That was where basically the idea was hatched, which is interesting. I keep saying interesting, but what else? I can't find another word. I don't like how often I use the word interesting, but there really isn't a great substitute without sounding even worse. Fascinating. Compelling. Now, the German aspect is, yeah, something I find interesting about it. Because, like, even some of the guys, like, there was the guy who, he was the pilot in Flight 93, the terrorist who took over Flight 93, and his picture and everything, I mean, he... You know, he could pass for a white guy, practically. He's the guy with the glasses. He had a girlfriend who had had an abortion. He had partied in college. Kind of like, you know, it reminds you of the uh, one of the uh, Boston Marathon bombers, especially the younger brother, where, like, people who lived in the dorms with him were like, yeah, he smoked weed. He did all the normal things. But that's what that one hijacker was like. And uh, so they, they were very westernized. You know, these weren't guys who, yeah, like when they went to Afghanistan and Pakistan, they grew their beards out and wore the garb. Obviously, their beliefs were fundamental, fundamentalist. But most of their lives, they had been heavily westernized. And then the statements Al- Al-Qaeda made afterward, too, were that we did this purely in retaliation for your involvement in the Middle East. It was seen as retaliation against the Christian Jewish conspiracy against Islam, the killing of Muslims in the Middle East to the ben- for the benefit of the American Christians and the Israeli Jews. Al-Qaeda made that explicitly clear. It wasn't just them saying you know what, I think we'll punish those people who don't live according to our ways. I'm sure that fueled it. But I believe them when they... I believed Osama... <laughs> I believe Osama bin Laden when he said that they did it as a retaliatory measure. 
And something on that scale, yeah, you can say it goes beyond retaliatory, but I, I trust that that was the actual motivation. It makes sense to me. And that's how I felt that day. Is I, I, The day it happened, I hate to say it, but it's like there was something almost celebratory to me about it, where I was like, finally we got what we deserved. You know, and part of that was just me being the teenage, oppositionally defiant rebel. Like, kind of wanting to be one of the few people who was like, yeah. You know, we deserved it. And, you know, I was talking about forums in a recent episode. And uh, the day that 9-11 happened, I remember, like, after school, I posted on some forum I used... And I think, I think I started a thread called Fuck America, which, again, I look back on and I'm like, man, yeah, I don't, <laughs> I don't agree with my 15-year-old self in that regard. But I do agree with the reason why I felt that way, because for me it was, I, I just saw it as somehow justified. But again, like, I, don't, I, don't, I wouldn't use that word today. I wouldn't say that it was justified, because I feel like now more than ever, I'm aware of the massive loss of human life that took place. Like at the time, they were just numbers. But as tragedies today, as different situations today get politicized and blown out of proportion, January 6th being a big one, like when you think about it, that even the, the small, even the, the, even the plane, the hijacked plane that had the fewest passengers was still like, what, like 30 times more people, not 30, um, like still, you know, over 10 times more people than, you know, January 6th, for example. Like even just one of the planes, even the, 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 the plane with the lowest passenger load had 10 times more people in it than died in January 6th. And I, I say that because it's one thing I'm, I'm hesitant to even talk about because I just don't even want to open that can of worms. But a talking point since January 6th happened among the more deranged leftists and Democrats is that January 6th was not just equivalent to 9-11, but worse than 9-11. And how do you take somebody seriously who says that? But these are people who have platforms. These are people, and, and not that I don't think they should have platforms, but point being, like, with, with the way that people are being deplatformed for other stuff, it's just a kind of incredible that somebody can actually make that comparison and not be obliterated. And I know people who, act, who feel that way. That's the crazy thing, too, is, like, I know people who feel that way. And that's not just recency bias. I mean, that's pure delusion. That person is beyond hope. Like, I wouldn't even... That's a good example of, like, somebody that I wouldn't even approach. Like, the sort of person who says that January 6th was even on the same spectrum as 9-11. And often that's the same sort of person who's either unaware or has completely downplayed the riots that caused far greater destruction and death in 2020. But the sort of person who... Um, The sort, of, the sort of person who, who would say that 9-11 and January 6th were equivalent or January 6th was worse. Like, that's a person that I can't even engage in that person. That person is a human swamp. And swamps can be beautiful. I like real swamps. 
human swamps are something else entirely. Like that person is a human swamp. That person, no, I mean, let's, let's get away from swamps. <laughs> human quicksand. That person is human quicksand. And you're not going to be able to rationalize with them. All you can do is mock that if you want to engage at all. But, you know, in a recent episode, I was talking about how you, know, you can't even engage in logic games because they don't care about logic. They've thrown that out the window. They operate purely in terms of propaganda and power and imposing their will. And when they say that January 6th and 9-11 are even in the same conversation, what they're doing is they're trying to make that the reality and tell you there's nothing you can do about it. Because the interesting thing is you can do that today. You, today you can make claims like that and while some people might criticize you, you're not going to be censored. Your career isn't going to be over. But what's interesting is if my teenage self had existed today where I'm saying, oh, fuck America, we deserved it. If my teenage self existed today and said that, nobody would care either. Because people say that all the time. That's a common talking point now. But it's interesting where... Like, what I said then was controversial. Like, like what I said... You know, what, what I said on that forum 20 years ago today. It's funny, how often can you look back and remember exactly what you posted on a forum? But, again, that's the weight of 9-11, is the fact that I can remember almost everything I did that day. And I didn't just create that. It, it shows the significance of the event. But, uh, you know... At that time, that was very controversial. People were really upset. Even though it was a forum where it was like a lot of people into music, counterculture, weird stuff. Even then, though, a lot of people fired back at me and they were like, no, fuck you. Because it inspired patriotism, even among people who you wouldn't expect it from. So it's funny though that like now it's like that comment probably wouldn't be as controversial. Whereas, you know, after 9-11, if, if you had compared 9-11 to any number of other smaller tragedies or bad events, people would have strangled you. Like if there had been some comparable event like January 6th in, you know, late 2001 or early 2002, and you tried to compare it to 9-11, you just would have been dismissed right out of hand, you know? So it's just funny how attitudes change in that way. And I mean, there's stuff about 9-11 that is questionable to me. I never really was that interested in the conspiracy theories. I'm glad that people had the freedom to explore them. And there are bizarre mysteries about 9-11. You know, like, Building 7 to me is still very strange. The fact that this... Like, I mean, I know I know that stuff was flying everywhere. I know the destruction... The radius of destruction was large, given... We're talking about massive buildings... In a dense metropolitan area, a dense urban landscape. New York. You know, like, like I understand the, the radius of destruction was very wide and that 
parts of the plane flew all over, debris was going all over. But I still find it very strange that Building 7 was across the street from the towers. It wasn't hit by a plane. It was hit by debris. But then it toppled, just like the towers did. Which, like, people have said they're designed to topple that way, which I believe. I have no reason to question that. The, the structural design of those buildings, like they, they considered that. I've, I have no reason to really question that, honestly. But uh, just, I mean, I think you can raise an eyebrow at Building 7 without investing in that whole idea. Because it's just like, oh yeah, it is kind of weird that a building across the street was hit with debris and it completely collapsed. And the Pentagon one is strange, too. Here I am getting really into it, but... No, I feel no level of investment. Like, if it came out tomorrow, they were like, oh, it turns out 9-11 was... It was a demolition exercise carried out by our government. It was a controlled demolition. It really wouldn't even change anything for me. I mean, and that should tell you how cynically I do view government. But it really... I mean, I mean, who knows? Who knows? Like, if that came out tomorrow and it was publicized... Obviously, the information alone isn't going to be the most significant part. Like, if it came out tomorrow that the government did do 9-11, that fact would actually be secondary to the response. Like, what it would do socially, what it would do politically, would, would be so much more important than just the fact alone that the government did it. But the Pentagon, too, is one where... You know, they had camera footage on, you know, they had like basically like a webcam, like low, like a low quality webcam that showed the impact. And it was one of those webcams, though, where it just, it takes a photo, you know, every, um, loud cars here, but, uh. It was one of the, I mean, I doubt it was a webcam. It was a, it was a security camera, but it was basically like webcam quality. It was, the Pentagon has webcams outside of their, outside of it for security. No, but it was a security camera and it was basically webcam quality, but it was one of those where the frame weight, frame weight, frame rate was very low. And so like, there's, I don't know, like a, like a, like a second or two seconds between each frame. And so it goes from looking like nothing is happening to the next frame you see the explosion. And of course you don't see the plane because it hit in a millisecond. But it is suspicious in its own way. You know, because just the nature of that one too, like when you actually look at the destruction and compare it to what happened to, you know, the World Trade Center buildings, it's like, huh, that's the only damage it did? And you can't even really see where a plane would have hit and it's very narrow I mean I, I think there's reasons why people raise their eyebrows I mean weirder things have happened than than uh, you know something like not looking the way it should in your mind you know I mentioned the example recently of like a fight like when you imagine a fight taking place you imagine it like in TV or the movies it seems very slow and dramatic Whereas, like, when you watch an actual fight, like, the sounds and just the way people move, like, you could easily just miss it. You could easily miss what's actually going on, and it doesn't feel the way that, like, a fight should feel to you. 
and so I mean the same could be could be said for you know a plane hitting the Pentagon where it's like it doesn't look the way you would expect that kind of impact to look but what are you basing that on you're basing it off of a movie a very specific idea you have of, of something you've never seen before is basically what it is so I understand people raising their eyebrows I just you know I remember when I was younger kind of like taking a, a glance at the different theories and ideas and some of them are more compelling than others but just being like oh yeah this is it, this is not my thing you know this is not my thing I'm not again it goes back to just being interested in something like not being able to force yourself to be interested in something and that's a good example where I, I just I couldn't force myself to care about that stuff I think where I come from on it is I'm simply glad that people had the freedom to look into it. Although we can see where that laid the foundation to... I mean, because that's really when the term conspiracy theory got mainstream. It was I, I would say it was the, the 9-11 conspiracy theories that really brought the term conspiracy theorist out to the forefront. And I mean, the internet being around then, too, played a large role. And we can see where that kind of laid the foundation to that word, to that phrase, conspiracy theorists, getting used now for basically anybody who disagrees with the narrative. So that's an interesting kind of development that you can trace that back to 9-11 conspiracy theories. Like that, that basically laid the foundation for referring to anybody you disagree with as a conspiracy theorist like we've seen in the last year and a half. become the scarlet letter and it's become heavily associated with the right too which wasn't necessarily the case back then conspiracy theorists were usually more apolitical and you had people from the left as well as the right usually i mean if they were on the right it was usually somebody who's libertarian oriented but the left was into it as well. I mean, it was it was very... I wouldn't say it was apolitical, but I would say it was... It spanned politics and, and included the apolitical as well. Whereas now what we're seeing is like, you get branded a conspiracy theorist when what you say is even, even associated with right-wing or conservative talking points. And if you actually look at things objectively, if you get away from the word or the, the phrase conspiracy theorist, you'll see that it's just it's prevalent everywhere now. Like the left is just based as the left is based just as heavily on conspiracy theory. Because that's kind of what lived experience and their sort of emphasis on anecdote does. It allows basically anything you think to be viewed as legitimate. So if you feel like police do this to certain people at a higher rate, well, nobody can challenge that. And that itself becomes this sort of anecdotally true talking point. I mean, that's just, I'm, I'm not using that as a real concrete example. It's just one of them. It's one of the ways of thinking where perception rules. 
but it's not always an honest perception either. It manipulates that game, but it's still cons as much of a conspiracy theory as anything. A lot of the major talking points these days are conspiracy theories. It's just that the term itself has been pigeonholed to refer to a certain type of person, of which I'm not one. You know, I, I don't, I'm not one. And I actually don't find what I would call the conspiracy theory industry very compelling. It's not something I've ever cared about. And I guess a part of that too is because, and I've gone on about this before, but how, you know, in my opinion, conspiracy theorists are actually looking for security and looking for comfort. Like it's more comforting to them to believe that everything is planned, that everything is schemed. And it's not that I don't believe in schemes and nefarious plots. But like that Zbigniew Brzezinski quote I always bring up, history is more the product of chaos than conspiracy. And I think of conspiracies usually as a way for people to deal with the chaos. Conspiracies to me are people reacting to the chaos, trying to do something with that chaos, something that is in their favor, something that you know achieves some goal of theirs. But I believe it's largely in response to just the chaotic nature of the world we live in. But conspiracy theorists, I think, overlook that, and they're getting a sense of comfort from the idea that, you know, even though... Hello. Where even though, uh, like, what they're thinking about is dark, what they're thinking about is bad, it's kind of, the intention is to kind of shake the very foundations of reality that people are plotting in this large-scale, nefarious way. Like, even though that should be disconcerting, I think that people actually get a source of comfort from it because even though somebody is conspiring, the conspiracy itself shows that somebody's in control. And more than anything else, I think that people fear the idea that somebody is not in control. Especially people who aren't in control of themselves. People who aren't in control of themselves are often the people who gravitate toward conspiracies, even in their personal life. Like people who think, like, so-and-so is talking about me. The sort of person who imagines that people are talking, their friends are talking about them behind their back, which happens. But there's a certain sort of person who is heavily affected by just the thought of that, whether it's a reality or not. And it starts early. Like I had a friend in elementary school who, we had some sort of free day. Like we were allowed to do whatever we wanted in class. And two of my friends left and went to the bathroom together. I don't know why, you know, we were little kids. You can make all the jokes you want, but they just did. And they were probably up to something. You know, they were probably looking to get in trouble. Kids did that a lot. Like, kids would go to the bathroom and they would, like, wet paper towels and throw them against the wall so that it would stick and then it would dry. So 
you'd have these dry paper towels stuck to the wall. Like people would do all kinds of things. So anyway, these two friends went to the bathroom and then this, this other friend of mine came up to me and he goes, Hey, follow them to the bathroom. Like go to the bathroom with them. Cause I want to know if they're talking about me. And it didn't seem like anything had prompted this. It was just that this friend of mine saw two other friends leave the class and go to the bathroom. And in his mind, they were going there just so they could talk about him, which is really funny. Maybe they were. I don't know. I can't. I didn't go. But I just looked at him and I was like, man, like, who knows what I said in little kid terms. But I was just like, you are paranoid. You know, I think you're maybe a little bit paranoid. But, you know, someone who's, who's not secure with themselves might think that. Like, I mean, that's a common... That happens at parties. That People develop these bizarre ideas in their head where, like, somebody's at a party and they look over and there's two people in the corner talking to each other quietly and they glance up and laugh or something. And that person, in their mind, they're like, oh, they're talking about me. You know, it's very common to think that way. And even though it's it's a bad thing, like what they're imagining is bad, like somebody saying or doing something against them, I think there's like security. I mean, it's very narcissistic for one, you know, because it's like they're talking about me. I just know it. But on top of that, it, it also assumes more control. It assumes like somebody has a plan. And when that plays out in political, large-scale conspiracy theories, I do think that people who rely on those people who really dive into the niche world of that I do believe they're looking for comfort because the idea of somebody being in control even if they're working against you the idea of somebody being in control I don't know gives this world some kind of structure (laughs) but you can see where that plays out all over the place and that is a, a, a strange thing to bear witness to where ideas that are equally out of left field, ideas that are equally imaginative and outright delusional, can be marginalized by calling them conspiracy theories, while others are like, well, we really need to hear this. Just interesting how simply calling something a conspiracy theory dictates whether or not people will actually pay attention to it. I mean, maybe you can look at the raccoons that way as well. <laughs> it's like, why do they gather in large packs sometimes and you know, steal people's cats and cause all kinds of terror in neighborhoods? Because, I mean, the funny thing about raccoons is they kind of seem conspiratorial. Like when you see them run across the road, their back is arched up really high, their tail is down low. Like their silhouettes, which are often what you see. Because at night, I mean, if you look at the woods, unless you actually see it moving and it's up close to you, you're not going to actually see a raccoon. So most of the time that you do see them is they're running across the road at night and you only see their silhouette in the streetlight. But their silhouettes look very conspiratorial. And their body language reflects that. Like, they look like they're sneaking around. They look like they're looking for trouble. But, it, you know, when they when they were forming these large packs that were, you know, really impacting the local environment, 
some years back. You know, my brain wants to be like, this must be some sort of conspiracy they're carrying out. They must have met up and plotted this. Like, why are there... And there are multiple gangs of them, too, I believe. But when you look at it, and you, need, you know, it almost gives you some kind of... It gives you, like, some kind of sense of structure when you're like, oh, yeah, the raccoons must have planned all of this. They must have planned to do it, to, to operate like this. And the reality is, as far as I know, it's just something that happens. Like, it's just something that big groups of raccoons do. And sometimes I have to remind myself of that as a human being. Sometimes I have to remind myself that some of these things I see that seem like a plot, that seem like a conspiracy, they're just what people tend to do. And it's really just the language and framing that makes it a conspiracy or not a conspiracy. And I think that idea gives people even more fright. The idea that this is just a part of our species is uh, scarier than thinking that these are all just like overarching conspiracies plotted and planned in back rooms. The idea that it's just either a function or a flaw of our species, that's actually scarier and makes people feel less in control. This land is mine God gave this land to me this brave, this golden land to me. And when the morning sun reveals her hills and plains, I see a land where children can run free.